hey, before you're seated, turn, give someone a fist bump and tell them it's way too cold. Uh, it, is, it, it is just, it is way too cold. It's not just cold, it's way too cold right now. Um, hey, if you brought your Bibles today, we're in Acts chapter 1. We're in the second week of a series called Consecrate. You can grab your notes out of your bulletin to follow along. If you didn't bring your Bible, but you have a smartphone with a Bible app, you can follow along that way. I'll be in the English Standard Version teaching today. Um, if you're watching us online because it was maybe too cold to get you and your family out of your place, thanks for being with us. We had considered exclusively streaming today's service on Peacock, um, but decided against it. <laughs> Because we heard that so many times last night that we're annoyed by the phrase. So we thought we'd let the whole internet uh, watch a service. For those of you who didn't watch a Chiefs game, you have no idea what I'm talking about. For those of you who did, if you saw a peacock in the road today, you'd run over it. Because we heard it about a thousand times um, last night. So we're in the second week of this series called Consecrate. If you look up Consecrate in the dictionary, you're going to see two definitions. To declare something sacred or to dedicate yourself for a divine purpose. We at Journey uh, are taking both of those definitions. And we are saying this year we are declaring that the mission of Jesus is sacred and that we are dedicated to it. We are consecrating ourselves to the sacred mission of Jesus as we begin to study through the book of Acts together this year and next year. Uh, the subtitle of our series is Following Jesus and Fulfilling the Mission. We said last week that if you do the first, you have to do the second. You cannot follow Jesus well without fulfilling the mission of Jesus impactfully. They go together. So last week in Acts 1, 1 through 11, we saw the heart of the mission. We saw the power of the mission. We saw the motivation of the mission. And as we pick up today, we're going to bridge two things that seem to be more important. We're going to bridge the last words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So today is going to be a bridge text between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But it's not just filler. It's not just background noise. In today's text, we're going to see the primary tools that allow followers of Jesus to walk with Jesus in a way that allows you to follow him and fulfill his mission. So we're going to see some spiritual tools. And then we're going to meet one of my favorite people in the Bible that you may or may not have heard of, but you should have heard of because I believe he is our example for how to follow Jesus in 2024. First tool we're going to learn in verse 12 as we jump into today's text. Number one, we're going to see the power of prayer. We're going to see what the power is behind prayer, and we're going to see how prayer can connect us to Jesus in verses 12 through 14. So Jesus has taken the disciples to the Mount of Olives. He's ascended to heaven. The angels have told him, get out of here and go to work. It says in verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. And when they'd entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers." So let me give you a snapshot with just a touch of Jewish history, and then we'll kind of dive deeper into the bigger picture of these few verses that we just read. First, we learn that we're a Sabbath's day journey. Say, so what, what does that mean? The book of Exodus said you were only allowed to move 2,000 cubits from your front door on the Sabbath 
which means they had to be at a point on the Mount of Olives that was in, was in three-quarter mile from the front door of the house that they were staying in. And if you go walk the old city of Jerusalem from where they believe the upper room is to the top of the Mount of Olives is a little less than three-quarters mile. We read that this group walks back from the Mount of Olives, and we read that the disciples are there, but it's a, it's a sad picture of the disciples. If I were to ask you how many disciples Jesus had, you would say 12, but there's only 11 listed which tells us something has happened. We obviously could go study the story of Judas and learn a little bit, but I think for our own lives, we should learn this lesson. We are gonna have people in our lives that start off with Jesus who don't finish. We're gonna have people in our lives and family who follow Jesus for a little bit and then they choose to walk away. This is, this is a picture of the disciples, but for those of us who have studied, it's a bit of a sad picture of the disciples because one has fallen away and kind of is no more. They, they've kind of rejected Jesus instead of, returning to Jesus. We also read that there's this group of women who are there that seem to maybe have as a leader of them, Mary. And then we see like one of the greatest shocks of the New Testament. We read that Jesus' brothers are there and they're all praying together. They're hanging out together and they're, they're following Jesus together, which I think should make us note this. What a difference a belief in the resurrection makes. You've heard the phrase, what a difference a day makes. This isn't a day, but what a difference this six weeks of seeing resurrected Jesus has made in their lives. The Bible tells us that over a period of 40 days, almost six weeks, Jesus appeared to his disciples at a minimum of eight times, and this group has become transformed. Not only are they together, but they're still following Jesus, and they seem locked in spiritually. Only a belief in a resurrected Jesus would do that. Look who was in the room. The disciples were there. How would we describe them in the six weeks between resurrection and ascension? They would be the denying, doubting, unbelieving, unqualified recipients, not only of the mercy of Jesus, but also of the mission of Jesus. We know their names. Peter denied Jesus. Thomas doubted Jesus. All of them were unbelieving. When they heard that Jesus had risen from the dead from the women, they all said, we don't believe you. Seven of them had quit their job as full-time disciples and had gone back to become full-time fishermen. Seven of the remaining 11 thought we're just unqualified to follow and serve Jesus in the way that he wants to serve us. Yet here they, here, they, here they are, serving Jesus in the upper room. We see the women, a group of at least six, who had gone from hopeless to hopeful in 40 days. We meet six different women by name who went to the tomb of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. Not to see that he was alive, but to anoint his body because he was dead. They were so convinced he was dead. When the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty, they didn't say he has risen. They said, where's the body? We'll, like, we'll take care of it if you'll just tell us where you've put the body. Six women. One was named Joanna. One was named Salome. The other four were named Mary. I know it's weird, but it's what the Bible says. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary Magdalene. Mary, the wife of Clopas. Mary, the, wife, Mary, the mom of James and John. So six women, Joanna, Salome, and then apparently Mary was a very popular name and almost all of them followed Jesus because like these six women were there totally hopeless and now they're like totally hopeful uh, following Jesus. But the big one is his brother's. I don't know if you know this, but Matthew 13, 55 said Jesus had four brothers. Uh, their names were James. He wrote a book of the Bible. Um, Jude wrote a book of the Bible. His name was Judas, but he changed it to Jude, which I would have done too after the whole, like 30 pieces of silver thing. So Jude, um, who also wrote a book of the Bible. Joseph, who was probably named after dad, um, and then a brother named Simon. 
And what we learn about them in John chapter 7 is they did not believe in Jesus. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They did not believe Jesus was supernatural. They did not believe Jesus was the Savior. They did not believe Jesus wanted to save save the world. They taunted him. They dismissed him. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that after Jesus was resurrected, he went and visited his brothers, James, specifically, and they became followers of Jesus. This little list of people waiting and praying And following Jesus on his mission, I think, tells us two very, very important things about following Jesus so we can fulfill the mission. One, I think it reminds us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a resurrection gospel. The power of Christianity is not the rules and regulations and the lifestyle. It's the power of life over death. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul told the church at Corinth, you remember the most important thing I told you about Jesus is that they killed him, he was buried, but he came back to life. Like the great hope of Christianity is not all the things we've been given in this life, but the life we've been given in eternity through Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a resurrection gospel. That is what fuels and empowers and motivates our heart to keep following Jesus. I think the second thing we can learn is that Christians are supposed to do life together. They were all there together. They were praying together. They were following Jesus together. They were sharing their meals together. They were doing Christian life together. Many of you have decided that you are not going to do Christian life in spiritual community because it's hard and it's gone wrong in the past. You were in a small group. You were in a Sunday school class. You were in a home group. You had some friends who it just didn't work out well spiritually. You say, I think I could define every person I've ever been in a small group um, as this way. They're denying, they're doubting, they're unbelieving, they're unqualified, they're hopeless, they're skeptics. It seems like those were the people that I was given to be my small group. Listen, those are the people all of us are given to be our spiritual community. Because Christians are nothing more than a group of misfits on mission. This is the varsity. This is the best of the best. And this is the description of who they were before the resurrected Christ changed your life and they needed each other. You gotta realize if you're gonna live in spiritual community, you're gonna live with broken people and probably go through broken relationships and unqualified, skeptical, hopeless situations. But we just keep showing up in a room with other people, amen? It's just the way Jesus' people do things. So we learn a lot about the power of prayer because it says they're all together and they were devoted to prayer. But I want to say that I don't think they were devoted to prayer. I think those in the upper room weren't devoted to, they weren't there to pray. They weren't there because they loved to pray. They were there because they were devoted to the person and mission of Jesus. Their life was not about prayer. Their life was about Jesus. And Jesus said, go pray. So they went and prayed. And when Jesus said, go serve the world, they went and served the world. And when Jesus said, go into all the world, they went into all the world. The disciples' goal in life was not to pray. It was to be close to Jesus. And prayer helped them to be close to Jesus. I've, uh, I've been reading a book that a friend uh, sent me at the end of last year on prayer as we head into 21 days of prayer as a church. It says, praying like monks and living like fools. It's a 2,000-year study of the history of prayer Um, in in the Christian church in Christendom. It's kind of a fascinating book that traces 2,000 years of prayer. Um, And it highlights that for 2,000 years, the reason the church prayed um, was to be in the presence of Jesus. To say it again, I would say this way. The reason the church prayed was to be close to the heart of Jesus, not to receive from the hands of Jesus. It's only the American church that has made prayer a grocery list of spiritual items 
that we need God to give us. The primary purpose of 2,000 years of the church praying was to be in the presence of Jesus. Not to get anything from him, but to be with him. That demands stillness. That demands schedule change. That demands intentionality. That demands slowing down our life. And the author goes on to state that the primary way we pray is by remembering not what's going on in our life, but who God is. He states in here, I was not aware of it until I read the book, that the Bible commands us to remember more times than the Bible commands us to pray. The Bible commands us to remember more times than the Bible commands us to obey. The Bible commands us to remember more times than it commands us to do anything or to not do anything. One of the primary commands of God to his people is just remember. Remember that I'm there. Remember that I'm good. Remember that I'm powerful. Remember that it's going to be okay. Prayer isn't necessarily sitting down and asking God for things. It's just being with God and remembering he is God. And everything is going to be okay because he's there. You know, prayer is not the first step of Christianity. We read that the disciples had been following Jesus for some time before they asked him, will you teach us to pray? Prayer wasn't the first steps of Christianity, but watch this. Prayer is always the next step of Christianity. Like whatever you've got going on in your family, whatever you've got going on in your job, whatever you've got going on in your health, like the thing that's coming Monday, your next spiritual step is to pray about it before you do anything else. Prayer wasn't the first step of the church, but it's always the next step of the church in inviting Jesus to be a part of what's going on. One of the things I love about this 21 day of prayer initiative that we're getting ready to head into, and I am asking all of our church to do this. A lot of you will do it on your own. You won't be able to come this week, six to 7 a.m. Monday through Friday, nine to 10 a.m. on on Saturday. I hope you'll, you'll come and make the days that you can come. Join us online if you can't, or just do it on your own. A lot of the days it's just devotionals written for you. We end these 21 days with what we're calling revival nights on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. What we're trying to do is just rearrange our schedule to not be so busy so that we can sit in the presence of God and remember who God is. That's what this 21 days is designed to do. I don't know if I could be honest with you that I can remember any prayer that I've ever had answered during our seasons of 21 days of prayer. But I can remember how being with Jesus has transformed my soul. I don't know that I could tell you that I asked for something and Jesus gave it to me, but I can tell you all the things I feel like he spoke to my heart because I finally got quiet enough to listen. And we had somebody write in a few weeks ago about how excited they were for prayer. And they said this, the first time I ever went to 21 days of prayer at Journey, my life was a mess. I'd recommitted my life to Jesus, but I still wasn't truly living as a follower. Because of this, I'd reached one of the lowest points in my adult life. I went to 21 days of prayer because I was finally done trying to control and fix everything myself. I honestly wasn't sure if I'd come each day or if the early mornings would get to me. But after one day, it was clear that God was calling to me. In fact, he had been calling to me for a long time. I just wasn't allowing him any space to listen. And in those three short weeks, my faith walk, my mindset, and my perspective did a 180. Because of those 21 days of prayer, my relationship with God became deeper than I ever imagined it could. Despite having grown up going to church for the first time in my life, I actually felt what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Now, years after that first 21 days of prayer, prayer events at Journey are non-negotiable for me. Even if you pray every single day on your own, there's nothing like the sole impact of praying in a room filled with others who are crying out to and connecting with our Lord. Prayer is rearranging things to be in the presence of God and just remembering that he's God.
and letting him do what he does because you give him the time and the space to do it. The power of prayer is a relationship with Jesus where you give him time to speak into your life. It's not the only thing we learn. Number two, as we keep learning, we learn not just the power of prayer, but the power of scripture in our faith walk, the power of repentance in our faith walk, and the power of humble service in our faith walk. Let's start with the power of scripture in verses 15 and 16. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Find it interesting that like the first scripture-filled spiritual leadership moment of the church said that scripture is what the Holy Spirit spoke. I think it's important to know that the testimony of the early church was that scripture comes from the Holy Spirit, which means scripture comes from God. Peter said, David wrote in the psalm scripture, but that scripture came through him from God, and it's important to know that the early church believed that the Bible was the word of God to the people of God so that they could live in the will of God. What Peter only briefly mentioned in Acts 1, hey, remember how the Holy Spirit speaks through scripture? He actually taught directly in 1 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. He taught the people of the early church that no prophecy of scripture was ever produced by the will of man. Man didn't make it up. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So people say, is the Bible a book written by men or is it a book written by God? The answer a little bit is yes. But the answer is it comes with the authority of God. The word that men wrote as they were carried along in the Greek language, the word is pharaoh. It literally is the picture of wind that blows the sails on a boat. It literally says, yes, men wrote down the words of scripture, but it all came from God, which means it's authoritative scripture. It is the word of God to the people of God for the will of God. I think it's really critical that as followers of Jesus, even though it takes faith to get there, we must believe that scripture is the word of God, not the word of man to the people of God, but the word of God to the people of God. You say, can you prove that? Not really. I wasn't there when God spoke it. I wasn't there when anyone wrote it. But there are some supernatural signs within the book that clearly show that it was not written by men. One, for instance, I'll give you just three little ones. One, um, this book was actually written by 40 different men, not a man or a couple, 40 different men over a period of 1,500 years, over a geographical region of 2,000 miles, a lot of it in different languages by people who'd never met each other before, yet it says the exact same thing over and over and over and over and over. There's no way, coincidentally, 40 people could have made up on their own over a period of 1,500 years a story that would build on one another time after time after time after time. The vast majority of the 40 never wrote what any of the, never read what any of the other 39 wrote. It's a book that appears to have a single source telling a single story pointing to a single destination of humanity with God. You can't read this and believe that a bunch of people just put it together over a period of 1,500 years and it kind of just all popped out and it was the same story pointing in the same direction. That wouldn't make sense. It also has the power of what I would call or the credibility of fulfilled prophecy. Which means time and time again, people will write in this book something that's going to happen hundreds or thousands of years later. They'll name people and places and say, God says this is going to happen here through him. And then it happens over and over and over and over again. One we might say could get lucky. But more than 800 fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament tell us that the people who were writing then 
had knowledge of what was going to happen hundreds of years later, which means only a supernatural source that saw the future, knew the future, controlled the future, could have given them the words to write that came true over and over and over again. Number three, there's like the unmistakable honesty of the Bible that tells us that people would probably not write about themselves what people in the Bible wrote about themselves. Noah, like, saved his family and saved all the animals of the world. If Noah was writing his own story, he would not have also included that he often got so drunk that he would lay naked in front of his family. But that's in there. Moses was the deliverer of Israel from Egypt. He probably, if he was writing his own story, would not have included that he, that he murdered people in, like, version 1.0 of, like, how am I going to free the Israelites? I'll just kill all the Egyptians one at a time. Like, if that had been his story about himself, he probably wouldn't have written that. Abraham... If he was telling his own story, probably wouldn't have written that he was such a coward that he sold his wife as a prostitute rather than face like conflict with the people in the land he was living around. Like David would not have admitted that he had an affair and then killed someone's husband. Like Peter would not have admitted that he would deny Jesus. Like over and over again, we read the stories of God used, misfits on mission, and we read the full truth about him. And I could give dozens of other options of why this book doesn't appear to have been written by men, but it appears to have been written by God. But I think it's important for us to know the primary litmus test of Christian orthodoxy is your view of the authority of God's word. Does God's word have authority over your life and over culture and over morality, or do we kind of make it up on our own? Now, a lot of people who say, I don't believe the Bible has moral authority, watch this, have never even read the Bible. So when I have somebody challenge me on, I don't believe the Bible's God's word, I don't believe the Bible's authoritative, I usually say, that's great. Would you read it with me? This year, let's read it together. 12 minutes a day. Once a month, we'll get together and talk about it. You can tell me what you're learning and why you don't believe it, and I'll try to answer your questions. Most people don't choose not to believe their Bible because they believe it contradicts themselves. Most people choose not to believe the Bible because it contradicts their life. They don't want to believe the Bible because they want to have authority over their life. They don't want to give authority to God. So I think it's important to realize that Part of the power of the early church was believing that Scripture is the Word of God. Jesus said, if you don't believe Scripture is the Word of God, you're not really a Christian. You say, where did he say that? Thanks for asking, John 8, 47. (laughs) Jesus said, whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you don't hear is that you don't belong to God. So I meet someone, oh, I'm a Christian. I just don't believe what the Bible says. Well, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says the reason you don't believe the Bible is because you don't belong to God. 2 John 9, anyone who runs ahead and doesn't continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Oh, I'm a Christian. I just believe that like, the, the truth of Scripture has progressed past what was written 2,000 years ago. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that you can't run ahead of Scripture and start making up stuff because real followers of Jesus continue in this teaching. So the power of the church was not just prayer, but it was believing that Scripture was the word of God. We also, as we learn about tools, we learn about the tool of repentance when we study the story of Judas. Peter says, Scripture spoke concerning Judas, and then he said in verse 17, he describes what happened to him. He said, he was numbered among us, and he was allotted a share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field, and with the reward of his wickedness, man, that's a, that's a wild line of Scripture that you should underline, the reward of wickedness. With the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of it and his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field in their language is called Akeldama, that is, field of blood. 
For it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. In learning about the end of Judas, we learn about the end of all those who reject God. It's fascinating that in the story of Jesus' final night of life, he had two disciples who absolutely rejected him. And then within the 40-day window after his resurrection, we see one who repented and came back and one who kept running away. And in the story of Judas, we see the story of all those who reject God. Peter said it was prophesied about them that their tent and their dwelling place would be empty. What do we learn about the end of Judas? The end of the reward of wickedness is that you're removed from the earth and you're removed from life. Now, the reward of wickedness was 30 pieces of silver. So getting real direct, he said he took the reward of his wickedness and he bought a field. But his actions in that field were the exact same actions of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That when he chose to run from God rather than to God, he forfeited not just his place on the earth, their Garden of Eden, him, life on planet earth, but he forfeited all spiritual life. And it says that he... And we know from the Gospels, he threw the money back in the temple. They said, this is blood money. We can't take it as an offering. They bought a field. The Gospels tell us that Judas hanged himself. This goes the next step and says at some point during that process, the limb that he was hanging on broke and he fell and his body burst open. So we kind of read all these stories combined. We read that his money was known as blood money and his field was known as the field of blood. He would be remembered forever from running from God and making kind of a bloody mess of himself. What I find so interesting in scripture is that the results of sin is often referred to as death and the metaphor of sin in this case is referred to blood, blood money, field of blood. But what is forgiveness often referred to in scripture? The shedding of blood. So did any of you grow up in a time um, before baggies had, could be like ziplocked? You remember like when baggies had that extra little flap on them and like you'd make your sandwich and you put your sandwich inside and then you fold it over and then you have to fold it over. Like anybody do that but me? Do they only have that in Southern Ohio? Okay, so there's some of you. And then like somewhere around middle school, like they, um, they, they made the Ziploc baggies and I'll never forget the commercials because the commercials had this like little girl with half her teeth and she was like, yellow and blue make green. Yeah, she would like zip it together and be like, look, the bag is closed now. Yellow and blue make green. Do you know biblically red and red Make white. I was uh, Tuesday wrapping up my outline to get ready to send over to our team, and I was watching it snow, stuck at home like a lot of you were. And as I was watching my, my yard and everything in it just turned to white, um, Isaiah 1, 18 popped into my head. Come now, let us reason together, says God. Though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them like wool. Though they be like crimson, I'll make them as white as snow. And I thought, man, I'm so thankful for all of my sin that God has covered. It's like a fresh, anytime I connect with Jesus, it's like a fresh blanket of snow over the parts of my life that I've messed up. But I thought, Jesus covers my, covers my sin. Jesus covers my red with his red. Red and red make white, but only when we repent and run to Jesus and not away from Jesus. I think one of the greatest shames of Judas's life is that it would be a spiritual shame to spend a lifetime around Jesus and his teaching yet never count on his blood to cover our sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul teaches us a little bit about the difference between regret and repentance. 
I don't know if he's talking about Judas. He seems to be talking about the situation because he said worldly sorrow, feeling bad about things, leads to regret. And I think Christians and non-Christians have regret about some of the things we do. We feel bad. Um, we do things we shouldn't do, and we feel bad about those, and we regret those. And then we get over it and we move on. But we're not really changed, especially not from the inside out. So Paul says, worldly sorrow brings regret. You do things, you feel bad about things, you get over it. But he said, godly sorrow leads to repentance. You do something, you realize it's wrong, and you realize not only do you feel bad, you are bad. And if you keep living for yourself, you're going to live disconnected from God. And the only way to not, in your soul, live in a broken relationship with God is is to run to him, not from him. So you turn and you run to him, and red plus red equals white. Like all the mess of your past with like a fresh blanket of snow on it, except the snow doesn't melt, and it all comes to the top again. Like we learn about the power of repentance when we look at the story of Judas, but we also learn about the power of humble service as we look at his replacement. So in verse 20, Peter says, we got to replace this guy. And he says in verse 21, he introduces us a story of one of my favorite people in the Bible. He says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. Apparently he didn't like his name and he kept switching because he got three. Um, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So I met Matthias a few years ago, spiritually, just in my quiet time studying scripture. And his story has deeply, has, has deeply impacted me as any story in the Bible. It's why the title of our Bible study today is Matthias. Because if you read what Peter just said about him, he's a really special individual spiritually. Peter stands up in this room of 120 people, 11 disciples, Mary, uh, her five friends, Jesus' four brothers, about 100 others. And he said, Judas is gone. Uh, we got to replace him. So he says this, we got to find someone who's been with us every day since Jesus got baptized. And we got to choose to like invite him onto the team. And when I read that, I thought, wait a minute, because I've read the rest of the story about Jesus. Peter is saying there were other followers of Jesus on the shore that day when John the Baptist in the Jordan River baptized Jesus and said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he saw the Holy Spirit settle on him like a dove. Like we never learned Matthias' name, but he was there that day, just kind of hanging out too, according to Peter and his requirements. That means he also must have been there the day on Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus went up on a mountain and he prayed all night and he came back and he called his followers to him, more than 12, at least 13. And from his group of 100, he said, I'm gonna, um, I need 12 of you to, to come join the varsity. So I'm gonna take Rod and I'm gonna take Todd and I'm gonna take Jeff, I'm gonna take Terry and Aaron, um, Markel, Eric. Um, he chose 12. And then he was like, um, rest of you, thanks for trying out. Like, really glad you showed up today. Like, I don't know what he said to him, but he took these 12 
and the rest were not chosen, would, would you have stayed? Because Matthias did. He then took the 12 and they huddled up together and he said, I right now I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. You are going to have power to drive out demons. You're going to have power to heal sickness. You're going to have power to preach the gospel. This is going to be awesome. Um, go change the world. Can't wait to hear about it. And the other hundred were on the sidelines like, good luck, guys. We'll, um, we'll be here when you get back. Would you have stayed? In Matthew 19, Jesus in this group setting with all of his people told his 12 disciples, you're going to sit on 12 thrones in the kingdom of God with me along with the 12 tribes of Israel and we will rule and reign forever. Can you imagine sitting on the second circle of that group thinking how happy you were for your friends? Would you have stayed? When Jesus sent out 70, surely you would have been part of getting towns ready for him. When Jesus said, go get water and fill up the pitchers, you would have been involved in doing that. When Jesus said, pick up the basketfuls that are left over, you would have been there serving. When Jesus said, get the boats ready, you would have gotten the boats ready. When Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a dinner on the last night of my life, but only 12 are going to be able to eat. You all find your own dinner. I'll see you afterwards. Would you have stayed? Matthias is one of my spiritual heroes. Because he's who I would have wanted to be if I would have followed Jesus. I would have wanted to have been on the outside of the inner circle, yet still been all in with the mission. But I don't know that I would have been. I don't know if it would have been the first time I was left out or the second time I was left out or the third time I was left out. I don't know if it would have been when I was fetching water or getting boats ready, I don't know if it would have been when I was picking up basket full of foods, but at some point I would have thought, I'm not sure this is worth it for nothing. Yet there he is. Every day that Jesus was with us, beginning at the baptism until, of John until now, we gotta pick one of these. How about the other 98 that were like, you should take Matthias and Joseph Justice Barnabas, Barsabbas, whatever his name is. Um, they took those two through their lots and they're like, yeah, it's Matthias. How about the other guy with all the names? It appears he stayed and kept praying and waiting even though he didn't get picked again. Would you have stayed? Matthias is one of my spiritual heroes. I told our 8 a.m. service if I ever had an, another son and I pray to God I don't because I'm 45 and I don't think I could go through that again. <laughs> But if I did, I'd consider naming him Matthias. There's not a more inspirational figure in the New Testament for me because I don't know if you've realized this yet, but if we would have been in the original group, we would have at most been pick number 13 because <laughs> he had his 12. And we would have been like far down the line, just like faithfully serving Jesus. I think Matthias's life gives us three lessons that maybe one of these is for you, maybe none of them for you. We'll go quickly through them. What do we learn from Matthias? Lesson number one, spiritual commitment is greater than spiritual credit. Don't worry about getting credit. Just be committed. Spiritual commitment is greater than spiritual credit. Matthias was committed with no credit. He didn't even get his name in the Gospels, yet he was there every day, every step of the way. You know the craziest thing about the Bible verse show, uh, give credit to whom credit is due? So this is, it's that it's not a Bible verse. It's not a Christian principle. It was not true of Jesus. It was not true of anybody in the New Testament. Nobody got the credit they were due. 
they just were spiritually committed because spiritual commitment is greater than spiritual credit. Secondly, we learn that spiritual faithfulness eventually leads to spiritual fruitfulness. If you will be faithful, God will make you fruitful. Like if you'll just be faithful, God will make you fruitful. Peter, who put this little thing together to choose the new disciple, would preach to the church before his death in 1 Peter 4.10, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Take what God has given you in your life and use it to be faithful. Like, just be faithful. If you will be faithful, God will be fruitful. If you will be faithful and not worry about who gets the credit, God will help you be fruitful. He would say in 2 Peter chapter 1, he'd give us a warning that is, that gives us two, two words that I pray are never said about me spiritually. Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and in knowledge self-control and self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and a mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are two words that I am afraid ever being applied to me spiritually, that my life has been ineffective or unproductive because I've not been faithful. You say, yeah, but nobody sees. I've not gotten any credit. God sees. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So I don't get any credit. Yes, God credits your account. Yes, it's not in vain. God sees it. A lot of us commit to things that we eventually back away from because nobody gives us the credit for what we're doing. Some of you right now are trying to figure out how to make a job transition. It's not that you hate your job. It's just that nobody at your job gives you the credit that is due to you. And because of that, you're trying to figure out if you should be committed to it anymore. Commitment is greater than credit. If you will just be faithful, God will make you fruitful. Because Christians, number three, authentic Christianity is living for someone else's name. It's really not about you. Matthias, how for three years could you hang out without getting your name in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? He's like, well, those, those books weren't really about me. Yeah, but like every day you were there, it's like, yeah, but those books really weren't about me. How did it feel in Acts to finally get your name in the Bible? Well, I mean, it, I guess it was okay, but the only reason I was invited in was to officially be on mission for Jesus. So like the whole Jesus thing is really not about me. It's just about being a faithful servant. As we read through Acts, we're told that if we follow Jesus, we'll fulfill the mission. Today, we're given some tools, prayer, scripture, repentance, humble service. Be faithful, follow faithfully, and you'll be fruitful. What Scott said to your heart and what you've heard today, and what do you need to do to just kind of wrap your heart around what you've heard and take a step forward? As we close, our reflection questions will scroll. The first one um, today will be this. Is there anything you've stopped doing spiritually uh, because you don't get credit for it that you need to recommit to? And then we'll kind of walk through what we've heard today. Take this moment to think, reflect, pray, and then I'll come back and close this in prayer when we're finished. God, as we reflect on these questions, open our heart to honestly assess if our life has been ineffective and unproductive. Open our heart to assess if we have become uncommitted because we weren't credited. 
open our heart to assess where we need to live on mission in 2024. Help us to genuinely answer these questions and move towards you today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.